amazing week after week how we have all these guys that lead us in worship, gals who lead us in worship. It's just amazing. What a privilege we have, huh? Well, um, I just got back from Canada, eh? Kelowna, BC, Kelowna, BC, BC, Kelowna, however you say that. Somebody got mad because I wrote I was in Canada, Kelowna, Canada, and they said, no, you have to say BC. So I don't know why it's before Christ, but whatever it is. It's... But it seemed like it was after Christ because we had a great time with uh, Casey, Casey, Stacy, Casey, and uh, Wesley, and we got to be with Heidi Baker. That was fun. I know we stayed up till two o'clock in the morning talking, a uh, praying, praying. I meant praying, <laughs> praying. We were in deep prayer, and then uh, Sean, Sean. Hoyt was with us. That was fun. You know, you ever been to a place that's crazier than you are? Like, I kept, you know, I went to, I I just filled in for Bill, so I just flew there. I was supposed to be on vacation, so I just flew there for actually a day and flew home. And I was, so I was in like only three services in like three sessions. It was like, those, I kept turning to Stacy and said, this is the only place I've ever been where you guys are crazier than we are. Like, they made us look normal. I know, I didn't want to say it, <laughs> normal. So, um, a couple things. Bethel Music Heaven Come Conference in L.A. starts Wednesday through Friday. How many of you are going to that? Yeah, it's going to be amazing. Now, um, Christine Kane's going to be speaking. That girl rocks. She said more in 30 minutes than I say in 30 days. She shared this, uh, it's not part of my message, but I, I, how many of you were here when she shared here? It, was that amazing? I remember one of the lines she shared was, God's not doing the, uh, the next thing, he's doing the new thing. And then Joseph Bishop Garlington, Bishop Joseph Garlington is going to be there also, so it's just going to be over the top, amazing. You're going to want to come. Jesus said, Come. I don't know if he meant there, but sure he said come somewhere. So why don't you grab a hand and let's get a girlfriend. At graduation, I don't think I've told, have I seen you since graduation? No. Yes, have I seen you since graduation? Since graduation, have I seen you? Has there been a service since graduation? Oh, I probably already told you this then, huh? What? Yeah, a couple of graduation, we were greeting them, and uh, you know, we were hugging the students as they passed us by, and, uh, and a girl and a guy passed us by and stopped in front of me and said, she, I squeezed her hand the first day of school, and we're getting married three days after school's done. The dream is alive. The dream is alive. So... All right, you got a girlfriend? You know what to do, right? This is our tradition. You squeeze the hand of the person next to you if you want to date them. You squeeze back if it's a yes. If you're married, just show them the ring. Awesome. All right, let go of hands. We're going to pray now. You can't pray this way because it just stimulates too many hormonal responses. But it is the reason why the young people follow me. I know. An analyst said, you have a lot of young people who follow you on Facebook. You're an old man. I'm like, yeah, because I get them all married. That's why. And I talk about sex. That's the other reason why they follow me. 
So, okay, we're going to pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for what you're doing in us, through us, among us, in our city. Let's just pray for Bill right now, too. Lord, we just release complete and total wholeness over Bill. We say supernatural recovery. In Jesus' name, we pray right now that you would just visit him again in the hospital room there. We pray, Lord, for peace on Benny. We just pray for just really, really total and full recovery and quick, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. A little update on Bill. He, they, um, he had a, a, a tube down his, um, into his lung. They took that out today. Stomach, I'm sorry, into his stomach. They'll, they took that out today, and um, they'll little by little be started giving him water now, and then, and then pretty soon food. And we're hoping he's out Tuesday or Wednesday, sometime early next week is the goal. So that's really good. So very much good report. Um, and yeah, we just want him to keep moving forward. I texted him today and said, "You're like Jesus. You know, we've been fasting for 40 days, food and water." And maybe you'll come out of the hospital in the power of the Spirit. So, anyway, um, I want to talk about dominion theology. Just thought I'd start light. I get, you know, I, yeah. I get, I don't know how many messages, private messages, and stupid messages. Some of them aren't stupid. Most of them are not stupid. But messages and people ask questions. Or or actually they make statements. Sometimes it's in question form. But it's mostly a statement. I heard you Bethel guys believe in dominion theology. I don't actually know what that is. (laughs) So I thought I'd talk about it. (laughs) It's been increasing. Like, have have you heard that about Bethel? Like, Dominion theology? How many of you heard that about Bethel? Only like two of you. You're like, huh. So do we, do you, does Bethel believe in dominion theology? And then they write these long things about dominion theology. I don't actually know what dominion theology is, but I, I just want to say this. Like, Here's my whole message. You ready? We win. <laughs> like we were born to win. So I'm like, you know, so I'm coming out of the closet. I used, to be, I used to be a closet conqueror, but now I'm coming out. I'm like, we're, we actually win. And we, we, don't, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Like we've already won. And so um, I, I want to talk a little bit about um, what's it feel like to actually be a winner. And, you know, Jesus said, um, first he said, I'm the light of the world. And then three chapters later, he said, you're the light of the world. And he said, you're the light of the world. He didn't say, you're the light of the church. He said, you're the light of the world. And so, you know, um, I think people struggle with some of my stuff because I believe that. So some people think, and I don't know, you know, this is not necessarily the, the opinion of our sponsors. But some people, I've heard people teach a lot that in the last days, the light's going to get lighter, lighter and the darkness is going to get darker. And I'm like, okay, so let me just talk through that for a minute. And you don't, you don't have to agree. You have a right to be wrong. <laughs> but if I turn the light on brighter in here, 
there's no way it can get darker someplace unless I take the light and I put it under a basket or under something, right? Because then it could get brighter in the, in the basket and darker someplace else, right? But what did Jesus say about putting the light under a basket? He said, no one lights a light and puts it under a basket, but they set it up high. So then he said, you're the light of the world. You're a light set on a hill that can't be hidden. And what I'm getting at is that if that metaphor is actually true, then it can't get lighter at the same time it gets darker in the world. Because if Jesus said you're the light of the church, then of course the church could get brighter. Are you following me? I'm just trying to be a little bit practical first. Like, if Jesus said you're the light of the church, then the light in the church could get brighter while the world gets darker. But he didn't put us in the church. (laughs) He didn't put the light in the church. He put the light in the world. So what I'm getting at is, how could you have theology that says in the last days the light will get lighter and the darkness will get darker? Because the darkness is evil in the world, right? But where did he put the light? He put the light in the world. And then he put it at the top of a hill. The metaphor means you put it in the highest place so everybody could see. So what I'm getting at is this, is that it doesn't make sense if that metaphor is true that it would get lighter and darker. Like you could use another metaphor to say, well, there'll be troubled times in the last days. Okay, well... Jesus said, in the world you have tribulation, but how many know I've overcome the world? And how many know we're not in the world, but we're in Jesus? So I understand you can use other metaphors to say, well, there's going to be tribulation in in the world. It's like, that's true, but there's going to be light getting brighter. And you can't have light getting brighter and darkness being darker at the simultaneously if you put the light. Where do you put the light? In the world. And then you put it on a hill. So, you know, if you don't believe that, that's fine. I'm just saying the metaphor doesn't work any other way. And also, I'd like to suggest that Jesus is the light of the world, and he's the light so that everyone could... What's the idea of the light? So you can see. How many know the idea isn't to see the light? The idea is to see. What I'm getting at is that when you turn the light on, you don't stare at the light. Some people do. They turn these lights on bright. drives me crazy. Turn them on, I'm like... It feels like a car's coming at you. I'm saying the goal of light isn't to see the light. It's to see. You are the light of the world. What's the goal? Not that they can see the light, but that they can see. That the darkness is removed and they can see. So I'd just like to suggest that, we, that the goal... One of the goals of us knowing Jesus is that we would actually be a light to the world. It's simple. It's like, wow, Chris said we're the light of the world. No, actually, Jesus said that. Chris is repeating what Jesus said. I don't know why it seems so profound that when the light gets brighter, the darkness gets uh, gets less. And, and what, what if it's, is it possible that we're supposed to win? Is it possible that we're not winning because we don't think we're supposed to win? I don't know, in sports, uh, Eric and I both like sports. So in sports, some teams play to not lose. 
And when you play to not lose, you almost always lose. And the other thing about sports is that when you, when you're, if you're a good athlete, you know, there's no good athlete that goes into a game thinking they're going to lose. There's something about confidence that's important to win a game. I don't know. I'm trying to say, if you think you're going to lose, you're probably going to lose. So how about if you think you're supposed to win? Like, what would happen if you just changed your mindset and said, actually, we're supposed to be winning? Actually, we were born to win. And I think, you know, I think that instead of... Okay, let me see this. If darkness is getting darker, if it is right now, whose fault is that? Darkness? Okay, well, let me try it another way. What's more powerful, darkness or light? Okay, so if darkness, if it is getting darker, whose fault is that? It can't be darkness's fault because darkness has no ability to, be, to get bright. <laughs> that didn't even work at all. <laughs> I'd like to suggest to you that, when, that we have changed our eschatology to actually take, out, take away the responsibility for darkness. So now, we have, now the darkness has to get darker so Jesus will come back. And I'm like, no, no, we're supposed to be... We're supposed to be winning. Well, what if we're not winning? If we're not winning, don't change the eschatology. Get confidence and faith. Don't change the goal. If you believe you're going to lose, then you're going to lose. So I don't know why it's like so... Um, why is it so controversial that we're supposed to win. Well, are you pre-trib, post-trib, or mid-trib? I'm if necessary. If the devil wants to come into the tribulation, I'm not afraid of the devil. He's afraid of me. I'm not afraid of the Antichrist. I'm not saying he's afraid of me. He's afraid of Jesus who's in me. Okay. Okay. I want to talk about winning. Acts 5.40. Why don't you turn there? It's in the Bible. (laughs) Can we talk about the Bible? This is uh, Peter and John, and they've just, uh, they've done a bunch of preaching, and they get arrested, and verse 41 says, uh, verse 40 says, and they took his advice, speaking of the uh, religious leaders, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then release them. So the apostles went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for the, name, for the, sake, for the sake of his name. How many know the apostles refused to be victims? It's like, whenever, even when you beat us, we're winning. I, I, I just want to break off the victim mentality. You're not a victim. Well, what if they kill us? We're going to heaven. You can't lose. You were born to win. The apostles, you know, they're preaching and they get, and they, and they, and they get beaten. They get arrested and beaten. And you're like, oh man, we suffered a, a, we suffered a loss, a defeat. It's like, oh, 
this is awesome. We got beat for Christ's sake. And what I'm getting at is this, is that when you have, when you have a victor's mentality, you even process floggings through victory. We just had a victory. They flogged us for the name of Christ. <laughs> This is dominion theology. You can beat me, but I win. You can kill me, but I win. Romans 8, 28. Let's go there. I love this. We're going to read quite a bit tonight. Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes some things all things to work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purposes for those whom he foreknew he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that we might be the firstborn of many brother and those whom he predestined he also called and those he called he justified and those he justified he also glorified what then shall we say to these things if God is for us then who can be against us he, did not, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for all of us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one, so who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ, he who died, yes, rather he who, ra- who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities or things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death or any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is... Christ Jesus. So how many of you know you were born to be a conqueror? And in the context, it means all things work together for good for those who love God and called according to his purposes. So if you're going through something and it isn't good, how many know it's not over? Because all things work out for good in the end. So if it's not good, then it's not the end. So dominion. Oh, I can't walk now. It's trippy. <laughs> Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus summoned his twelve, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. How many know you were born to have dominion over sickness and disease? <laughs> Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all I taught you. So how many understand you have dominion over darkness? You have dominion over sickness and disease and demons? And you have leadership in the world. Make disciples of nations. Mark 16, 15. He said to them, go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. How many know the gospel is not just for people? Let me say it again. Go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. How many understand that the gospel is not just for humans? When Adam and Eve fell, when Adam fell, God cursed the ground. 
How many know the ground? That's creation. When Jesus died on the cross, he broke the curse off of man, but he also broke the curse off of creation. That's why all creation groans and waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Why? Because creation is waiting for its redemption. So how many know that we actually have power over creation? What happens in darkness? I'm talking about... Oh, I didn't finish the verse, sorry. These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they'll cast out demons. And they'll speak with new tongues. They'll pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not harm them. They'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. You know, this is kind of funny because people write us and, and media people, they like to grab, you, grab me, grab one of us, and they're like, um, you guys believe in picking up snakes? <laughs> you know, it always sounds way worse. You know, it's like, it's fun to preach it, but then when you, you see it in the newspaper, it looks really weird. I understand you guys drink deadly poison over there. Well, I've eaten my own cooking. (laughs) These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they'll cast out demons. You have dominion over demons. They'll pick up serpents. You You have dominion over the animal kingdom. You'll drink deadly poison. You have dominion over the biological kingdom. And if you lay hands on the sick, they'll recover. You have dominion over sickness and disease. How are you... How, when people say, do you believe in dominion? You, do you have dominion theology? I'm like, yes. We win. We are not victims. Well, I don't feel like I'm winning. Well, you are. I don't feel like it. Well, that's why you're not led by the soul. You're led by the spirit. Your feelings are good servants, but they're terrible masters. Isaiah 60, arise and shine for your light has come. It's verse 1. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, deep darkness covers the earth. Deep darkness people. What happens in the midst of deep darkness? Behold, behold, deep darkness covers the earth. Deep darkness people. But the Lord will rise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. Nations will come to your light. Kingdoms to the brightness of your rising. Look all around. Your sons come from afar. Your daughters come from. Um, your sons come from afar. Your daughters will be carried in arms. Then your heart will thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea is turned to you. The wealth of nations will come to you. How many understand what happens in darkness? Darkness can't defeat you. If you drag believers into dark, into deep darkness, they'll light a match and set the world on fire. I'm saying you were born to win. Well, you don't understand my circumstances. No, but I understand his power. Daniel 6, 16. Great story. Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den. It says that King Darius got tricked into, into putting him in the lion's den. And so it says that he signed the decree to put Daniel in the lion's den. And it says that he fasted all night. That's what I do. I fast all night. It's a royal fast. Then I break fast in the morning. Actually, I'm only eating about 40 days a year. When you add up all the time. Anyway, okay, whatever. The king gets up early in the morning, runs to the lion's den. Verse 19, then the king arose at dawn, at the break of day, and went with haste to the lion's den. We had come near to the... 
to the den where Daniel was, he cried out with a troubled voice. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God who you serve day and night able to deliver you? And then Daniel spoke to the king from the lion's den and said, O king, may you live forever. God has sent his angel to shut his lion's mouth. Shut the lion's mouth and they have not harmed me. What I'm getting at is like, I'm saying, you were born to win. You have dominion over lions. Daniel 3.16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get thrown in the fire. The king's like, you need to bow to my idol. He said, we're not bowing. Well, you need to bow to the idol. If you don't bow to my idol, I'm going to throw you in the fire. And they said, well, you can throw us in the fire, and God will probably save us. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing to your idol. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know the story, famous story. The king gets really angry. He's like, he's got anger management issues. He tells the the, the, his servants, his soldiers, make the fire hotter. And it says they made the fire ten times hotter. In fact, when they opened the door to throw Daniel, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in there, it consumed the soldier. So they obviously couldn't get the door closed. They throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. And what happens when they're in the fire? The king goes, hey, my memory's not working too good. How many guys did we throw in the fire? They go, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Three. I see fourth. And he looks like the son of God. It said when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out, it says their, their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, I don't know who your God is, but I make a decree that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be worshipped. I'm saying sometimes when you think you're losing, you're really winning. Man, I'm in the fire. Look for the Son of God there. He likes to hang out in furnaces. I'm in the lion's den. Oh, God loves lions. He turns lions into pussycats. I'm saying, listen, if you think, you know, Eric had this great message this morning about faith. Did you hear the message this morning? You should get it. This is part two. How many understand it's by faith that these things happen? In other words, if you hit the bottom of the lion's den and you don't believe you're not going to get eaten, you're probably going to make a really good steak for the lions. You get into the fire and you don't believe God's going to meet you there, he's probably going to meet you in heaven. I'm saying our, our whole life is lived by faith. It's important that you believe you're supposed to win. I'm saying I think that one of the reasons why darkness is getting darker when it should be getting lighter is because we created a theology and an eschatology to make it okay for it to get darker so we don't actually believe we're supposed to win. I know this is going to be sound harsh. The, the, the homosexual community believes they're supposed to win. And 3% of our population in America is setting the agenda. Whether you think it's right or wrong isn't my point tonight. My point is 3% of the people are determining the agenda for 97% of the people. You know why? Because they believe they're right. And we believe we're supposed to lose. We make all kinds of, we write books about it. Well, brother, we're going to go through the Great Tribulation. I've already been through the Great Tribulation. It's called life. Somebody told me one time, they said, I believe that my mission is to prepare people for the Great Tribulation. 
prepare people to great. You're going to have a tribulation before you have the tribulation? Listen, if we're going through the tribulation, I'm only going for three and a half years of it or seven, but I'm not going to make it a tribulation on the way to the tribulation. And what kind of stupid is that? I'm dead serious. Like, I'm not going to like have bad days so I can prepare for bad days. And when I have bad days, there'll be grace for it. I've had bad days. I don't, like, don't want to worry about having the bad days. In fact, I love, you ever find verses in the Bible that they just don't seem right? You ever read Matthew 6, the last verse? It's Jesus talking. And he goes, don't worry about tomorrow. And you're like, that's a good, that's good. That sounds like Jesus. Don't worry about tomorrow. For each day has enough trouble of its own. That doesn't sound like Jesus. It doesn't seem like, guys, listen, I don't want you to worry about tomorrow because we got enough problems today. I don't want to worry about a tribulation. I have a tribulation. It's called church people. I'm serious. Preparing for a tribulation, like when let's practice for the tribulation. What for? Let's practice joy, and if we have a tribulation, then we'll get through it or go to heaven. Brother, we should practice like, you know, not taking the mark. I don't. What do you? How do you do that? If I get a 666 written on my forehead, I'm going to stand upside down. Can it be all nines? I've been preparing for the tribulation for 40 years. I've been, like, I can go. I figure I can get for the first three without eating. stupid man and all that stuff is about losing no listen now no, joke aside now that's what how losers think well we're probably gonna lose we should prepare for losing I'm preparing for winning I was born to win I said this before but you 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 know you got eyes and the only they only go forward you know, you don't think God could have a backup eye? Look at the stuff God, like, oh, God forgot to give us a backup eye. No, he didn't. God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen in what God made. In other words, you look at you and you can tell a lot about him because you were made in his specific image. Specific image. Shut up. You were made in the image of God. What I'm saying, listen. When you look at a monkey or you look at a horse, it's like they were made. Listen, you can look at creation. You can learn something about God, right? Because all of creation, God made. Follow me. But when you look at you, you look at your neighbor, you are specifically made in the image of God. So what God created speaks about God. When God said, I'll make someone just like me, you can look at them and you can find attributes of God in them. I'm saying even in their body, right? Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, your body was actually a prophetic sign of how God thinks. When God put eyes in front of your head, 
and none in back, that wasn't an accident. When he made your hands only work forward and you, they don't work backwards, that wasn't an accident. When he pointed both feet forward and didn't point one back, hey, man, I'll tell you, you God's created some freaky things. You ever see like fish and stuff? They say ugly as fish. You got eyes going both ways and two butts. I look at a fish and I'm like, what are you supposed to learn from that? Pointy things and crazy things. Have you ever been to an aquarium? You're like, I, I go to the aquarium, I like it. I'm like, okay, God, what am I supposed to learn from that fish? Because God's attributes are actually shown in stuff he made. I'm like, wow, what were you thinking when you made that thing? It's ugly. And other things are beautiful, right? No, I'm really not, I'm being funny, but I'm not joking. So I'm saying, your hands only work forward, your feet are only go forward. If God wanted your feet to go back, like, if he wanted you to be prepared to retreat, he could have swiveled you. Your head could have, whoop, gone backwards, and your feet, you don't think God's smart enough to do that? He could have like, whoa, you swivel your feet, your head turned around, your arms go the other way, and whoa, you're gone. How many believe that God could have made you swivel? Absolutely. He could have made you swivel. If he wanted you to swivel, he could have made you swivel. He's brilliant. Or he could have put two more going that way, you know, another head going that way. Whatever. He could have done a hundred things. But the reason why you only have stuff that works this way is because you weren't born to retreat. And then he said, I'll be your rear guard. You know, that means a lot of things when God's your rear guard. Physically, it means I'm going to protect you physically. Listen, don't worry about what's behind you because I got it. But he's also saying don't worry about tomorrow or yesterday because I already took care of yesterday. And by the way, the devil doesn't care about your yesterday, but he's terrified about your tomorrow. That's a, I'm right about these things. You have to think about how you were created. You were not created to retreat. Well, I've had some bad days. Listen, everybody's had bad days. If you're, you know, older than 16. Well, 12. You know, Ephesians chapter uh, one, one through 1 and 2 say, we're seated in heavenly places with Christ. Chapter 3, 4, and 5 say, we walk in the high call of God in Christ Jesus. So we walk. Amen. Chapter 6 says, when you've done everything to stand, stand firm. How many understand what the Bible says is on your worst day, stand still. <laughs> you know that saying that says two, two steps forward and one back? That's not in the Bible. God says, when you're having a really bad day, when all hell breaks loose, stand still. Don't lose the ground you took on the sitting days and on the walking days. And how many understand Ephesians chapter 6 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and world forces of darkness. World forces of darkness only go after world changers. Those are not demons. Those are principalities. You have an enemy, and the goal is it for, for it not to be you. The goal is to actually have such great theology that you actually need an enemy. Jesus said, love your enemies, and some of you don't have any because you don't do anything worth resisting. 
If you have a defeated attitude, the devil's not at your house. He doesn't, he's got 7.4 billion people to worry about. He hasn't multiplied since the beginning of the earth. You have. I'm saying demons don't multiply. So think about it. You know, when there was two people on the earth, you know, the humans were outnumbered. Think about it. When there was four people on the earth, the murder rate was 25%. You know, demons had, you know, they had a lot of vacation time. But now there's 7.4 billion people on the earth, and the demons have not multiplied. What does that mean? That means they're only at the places, or they only bother people who are actually doing something. You don't have time for a defeated person? Well, they might live in you, but it's just because they need a house. That was a joke. That was total, don't say everything that you think. <laughs> Sorry, I, you know, I think better when Bill's in the front row. Because he's like... <laughs> People are like, how do you know the voice of God? I say, it sounds like my wife. Acts 5, 17. The high priest rose up along with some of the associates in the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, the angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, taking them out, saying, Go stand in front of the people of the temple and tell them this whole message of life. Upon hearing this, they entered the temple about daybreak and began teaching. How many know what happens when you get put in prison? The angels let you out. Okay, here we go. Acts chapter 12, verse 4, jailbreak number 2. When they had seized him, speaking of Peter, they put him in prison, delivered him to four squads of soldiers. Why do you think they put four squads of soldiers in a prison? I mean, I already got you locked up. Why have 400 men guarding a guy, one guy who's already behind bars? Because he's got a reputation now for getting out. Right? So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was made fervently by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Did you get that? So they have Peter in prison, they have 400 soldiers guarding him, and they put two soldiers in the prison cell and stationed them on both sides of him while he's tied to the wall. They're like, he ain't getting out. (laughs) I love this. And behold, the angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter by the side, and woke him up and said, hey, let's get out of here. (laughs) And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said, gird up yourself, put on your sandals, and so he did. And he he said to him, wrap yourself with the cloak and follow me. This is the angel. And he went out and he continued to follow him. And he did not know that what was happening was with the, by the angel was really real. But he thought he'd seen a vision. And then when he had passed the, the first and the second guard, <laughs> did you get that? He got two guys chained up, 400 men guarding him, chained to a wall. Angel comes, hey, hey, wake up. What's going on? We're leaving. <laughs> he passes by the guards who are... 
He gets out of the prison. And remember, how did he get out? People were praying for him. He goes to John Mark's house, who wrote the book of Mark. Knocks on the door. Hey! Rhoda, the servant, answers the door. She's so excited, she forgets to open the door. She runs back inside and she says, Peter's at the door. They said, it can't be Peter, it must be his angel. Now, you just got to stop and think about this. They, they, they are more apt to believe that the angel, Peter's angel's at the door, than the guy they've been praying for for three days. I don't know what takes more faith, like to believe Peter got free, he's at the door, or that his angel is knocking on the door. Like, first of all, like, why would an angel knock on the door? I mean, just walk through this with me for a minute. Oh, that can't be Peter. It must be the angel knocking on the door. These people are not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And Peter's knocking. Hey, Rhoda, open the door. Uh, Listen, guys, I don't think it's the angel. Sounds like Peter. They open the door, it's Peter. Peter, you got out again. (laughs) I mean, what happens when you put a believer in prison? The angel lets him out. What happens if they guard you with 400 men, chain you to a wall, put two soldiers next to you? He lets you out. What's the point? You win. You don't understand. I've been in prison before, but this time I'm in a really bad situation. I'm in a hundred times better, worse situation than I was in last time. It doesn't matter. They put you in prison and lock the door with one lock, and they put you in prison and put 400 people and tie you to a wall and put the soldiers there. It doesn't, it's no harder. I'm just trying to say, like, I have 61 years of winning. Every time I have a problem, I think, well, I've got this far. <laughs> I'm 61 to zero. <laughs> 61 times I thought I was going to die, and I'm still alive. And someday I'll die, and then I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to be watching all of you. I'm coming to my own funeral and everything I am. I'm like, I'm going to see who comes. I'm going to see who gives an offering. Yep, I'm going to probably hang out in my wood shop too after I'm just going to hover like. <laughs> That's the joke. Acts 16.22. Jailbreak number three. The crowds rose together against them, speaking of Paul and Silas, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten. I don't know what it is in the Bible. Every time people get excited, they rip all their clothes off. And the prophets, every time the prophet, God spoke to the prophets, the old time, they, they ripped their clothes off. I'm like, I don't actually need a word. I'm good. <laughs> Can you write it out? <laughs> Do you notice that? Like every time God, how do you know God came? Well, a prophet ripped his clothes off. <laughs> Ran around naked in the church. <laughs> People are like, you know, people see manifestations, they're like, that can't be God. Why not? It's too weird. Have you read the Bible? You're the weirdest people in the Bible. 
I got this thing happening on me. What, what is it? I just feel like I'm supposed to rip my clothes off. <laughs> we got a prayer room for that. Stay in there until the anointing lifts. <laughs> Do you ever read stuff like this? Some people just read right over it. Yeah, and he ripped all his clothes off, and then he ran through the streets with a prophetic word. I'm like, did anyone hear the prophetic word when you're running around naked? Seriously, like, I didn't, what did he say? I don't know. <laughs> did someone jot it down? <laughs> someone ran through here naked saying something. I don't know. Most of us would remember what they said. And then the Lord had him do weird stuff. Have you ever noticed that? Okay, what I want you to do now, I want you to take all your clothes off and I want you to lay on your side for three years and I'm going to cook food over poop. <laughs> Would you question whether that was God? Like, could I speak to one of the other Trinity? Are you guys in agreement up there with this? Because this, this doesn't feel right. Uh, what's Jeremiah doing over there? He looks naked. Oh, yeah, the Lord told him to sleep like that for three years. What's that smell? Uh, he's cooking. Have you ever read some of this stuff? I'm like, you have to be a believer to believe this. And people are like, that church is weird. God would never do that. Dude, read the Bible. Anyway, okay. Acts 16, 22. And the crowd rose against them, and the chief magistrate tore their robes off and proceeded to order them to be beaten. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stalks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing praises to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And then suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains fell off. <laughs> when the jailers woke, he saw the prison doors were open, and he drew his sword and was going to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul said, oh no, we're all here. <laughs> Don't harm yourself. I mean, this is crazy. It's like, okay, God needs angels to let you... No, no, God causes earthquakes. You know there was three earthquakes in the Bible? All three of them freed people? The first one was at, was at, the, was at the tomb. Right, an earthquake's going to come and it's going to destroy you. Well, the only earthquakes I see in the Bible in the New Testament are the ones that free you. The earthquake rolled away the stone, remember that? And Jesus came out. The earthquake freed Paul prison so that's a jailhouse rock <laughs> started with a musical you're like do you have a point yes i already said it when i started we win we win what are your circumstances what 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 bad has happened in your life how about if you believed you're supposed to win well, I'm supposed to go through this tribulation. Okay, well, you can, but don't take me with you. 
I understand that we're supposed to consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. You know why you consider it joy when you encounter various trials? Because you're not a victim. Even when you're going through a trial, you're not a victim. You know why? Because you're attached to a victor. Even when you go through a trial, you are not losing. Romans chapter 4. Would you turn there, please? For this reason, verse 16, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed. Everybody say guaranteed. Guaranteed. To all the descendants. Say to all the descendants. Okay, let's stop for a minute. We've jumped into the middle of a thought. And the thought is this. You were born to be blessed. You are Abraham's children. And everything that was promised to Abraham is yours. That's the thought. And when he said yours, he says, now he's saying, I'm not saying y'all Jews. I'm saying all y'all. So, He's saying, listen, I know you Jewish people who will read this, you're thinking, I'm one of Abraham's children, and all the promises are for me. But he's saying, well, that's true, but all the promises are for you all, so it's not just the people who are under the law, but all the people who are by faith receive Christ through the faith of Abraham. Actually, all the promises are yours. Okay, all the promises are yours. Did you get that? Okay. So when... uh, um, so that the, I'm sorry, first, so let me just read it again. For this reason, it is by faith. For this reason, it is by faith, as opposed to the law. In other words, he's saying to the Jewish people, he's talking to the Romans, and he's saying, it isn't just the Jewish people that have the promises. It's everyone who serves Christ by faith. Got me? Okay, this is really important. It's by faith that it may be accordance to grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, but also those who are of faith in Abraham, who is the father of us all. For it is written, a father of many nations I have made you. Okay, let's stop for a minute. Where am I going? I'm talking about the fact that we were born to win. I'm talking about dominion theology. What is it about? It's about the fact that you and I were promised through Abraham to be the father, not in nations, of nations. That's the promise we inherited in Abraham. I'm saying, when you say, well, the darkness is supposed to get darker and things are supposed to get worse, I'm like, that's not what Abraham believed. Abraham was taken, do you remember he met God, didn't even know who God was. He met God, what's the first thing God tells him. He says, leave the Chaldeans to a place I'll show you. And on the way, God meets him. Remember this? He has like five places where he sets up altars. I think it was the first one. He sets an altar up, sets up an altar, has this encounter with God, and God goes, it's nighttime, so God takes him outside. And he goes, hey, Abraham, see those stars? I want you to count them. One, two, three, four, 1,142. Okay, that's enough. That's okay. You got it. That's how many children you're going to have. Gets him up in the morning. You know, he's in the desert. He's like, Abraham, come on, i got another lesson for you. I want you to count the sand of the sea. Didn't we do this last night? (laughs) One, two, 4,122. God's like, that's how many children you're going to have. And these descendants of yours, they will be fathers of many nations. I'm saying... 
Abraham was not the father of Israel. Abraham was the father of many nations. One of his sons, was a grandson, was a father to Israel. But the promise was not Israel. The promise was nations. I'm simply saying, if God comes back tomorrow, he hasn't fulfilled the promise to Abraham that we would be the father of many nations. And Jesus picked up the theme of Abraham when he said, make disciples of nations. I'm saying, you were born to lead. You weren't born to lose. And if you're not, if we aren't fathering nations, if we're not discipling nations, then somebody is. So why is darkness, why does, is the darkness growing? Because the light isn't in its place. Are you with me? I'm not saying, but let me be careful here, um, just to clarify. I'm not taking anything away from the Jewish people. I'm just adding you to it. The promises that was to Israel are also yours. I'm not saying they're not theirs. I'm saying they're all yours. And I'm saying Abraham believed that he was to be a father of nations. Jesus picks up the theme and says, hey, you know what? Remember the very first commandment I quoted already? God said um, to, to, to um, Adam and Eve, man and woman at the time, he said, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. That's the very first command to mankind. Be fruitful and multiply is the first one, and subdue the earth. I'm simply saying, like, I'd like to propose that the commission didn't leave. And then God meets a guy named Abraham and says, you're a father of nations. And I'm saying, why is it controversial that you're supposed to father nations and that hasn't happened, so therefore, there's more to happen? Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the, dis- and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, listen to what he's saying, but yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and having been fully assured that God, what God had promised, he'll be able to perform. Listen, what I'm getting at is this, he's not talking to, about Abraham anymore, he's talking about you. And he's saying, Abraham, your father, because he's the father of faith, had promises made to him that his descendants would be fathers of nations. The way Abraham received the promise of being a father, remember he's 100 years old and he can't have kids? Sarah's 99. It says she's way past menopause. She can't physically have children. It says, but Abraham didn't waver in faith, but believed in hope against hope. He believed, and thus he became the father of nations. Now, how many understand, how do we become fathers of nations? In hope against hope. It doesn't look true. Well, it didn't look like Abraham was going to have an Isaac either. And I think you mentioned Sarah this morning, laughing. I'm saying, like, it seems laughable that Christians would actually lead anything much less the world. It's laughable. And by the way, it's way past time. We're 100 years old, metaphorically speaking. And Sarah can't bear children. She's past menopause. I'm saying the church thinks we're fruitless. The time has passed. The first century should have done that. They didn't get it done. How are we going to get it done? It's been so long. Oh, everybody keeps promises. Nothing's ever happened. That's 
Abraham. And I'm saying, in hope against hope, we must believe. We must not set up doctrines where we are not going to have children. Now I'm on a metaphor. We should not set up doctrines where we don't fulfill the promises of Abraham or we push them into into a time zone that none of us are supposed to believe for. I'm saying, listen, practically, if you take the promises of God and you push them into a millennium, into a time zone, call it whatever you want, just call it a time past your lifetime, then you're not going to hope against hope because you push the promise to a place where you don't have to believe for it. And if the next generation kicks the can down the road and says, yeah, we're not supposed to believe for it either, and we're not supposed to believe for it either, and we're not supposed to believe for it either, how many understand the problem isn't the devil? The problem isn't darkness. The problem is that we didn't do what Abraham did. In hope against hope, he still continued to believe. And when it passed, when it physically, Sarah was passed, childbearing, it says, and he still believed, even though her womb was dead, that God would fulfill his promises. I'm saying, don't matter how dark it gets. Don't matter how immoral it is. Don't matter how many laws are passed that discourage you. No, God said, God said it, and I believe it. God said it, I believe it. Well, brother, here's a verse that says something else. Well, okay, all those verses that I'm saying, how do you interpret the Bible. Well, first of all, you can't, <clears throat> you can't take the promises of God away and translate and interpret the Bible to lose when you were born to win. <laughs> uh, okay. If I know my wife loves me and that she's loyal and faithful, When she's an hour late coming home, there's a bunch of things that can't be. Well, you don't know where your wife is, so how can you say she's not there? Because I know her. Yes, but you have no proof she's not with another man. Yes, the proof is in the character. What I'm getting at is like, give me some facts. I don't have to give you facts because I know the person. So I'm saying we have to interpret the scriptures through the, the, through the character of the God we have a relationship with. Okay. I'm getting close. I'm almost done. Ephesians 1, verse 15. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith of the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, having heard of the... Come on, here we go. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and the love you have for all the saints did not cease giving thanks for you and making mention of you in my prayers that God that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the father of glory may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened now listen he's saying I'm about to tell you something that unless your eyes are enlightened you will not believe it in other words This is one of the few places in the Bible where Paul prays for us before he talks to us. He's not just writing, well, I pray for you. He's like, I am currently right now praying for you that you would be enlightened because of what I'm about to tell you. And he says this. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what are the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, places far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Did you get that? He said, I'm about to tell you something. You'll, need, you'll actually need a spirit of revelation to get it. Jesus defeated death. And the power that rose Jesus from the dead is now in you. And I'll put you over everything. You're the body. I'm the head. And I put it under the feet. I didn't put it under the head. I put everything under his feet. You're supposed to be ruling. <laughs> I'm not talking about oppressing people. I'm talking about bringing light into darkness. Like you're supposed to win, not lose. Well, how about this verse? How about that? I don't know about every verse, but I know about this. From the beginning of, of, our, of our relationship with God, God said that he created man in his image. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them. He said, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. That's the first words out of God's mouth to a human being. From there, he promised Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of nations. When, when, when Jewish people, when people of the Old Testament, let me say it differently. When Jesus walked the earth, and he talked about in Matthew 24, and he told the disciples that he's going to tear down this temple. They asked Jesus, what are the signs of the times? What are the signs of the end of this they did not say world. They said age. Do you know why they asked him that? Do you understand what the disciples were asking? It wasn't the question you think they were asking. The Old Testament said that nations would come to his light, that kings would come to the brightness of his rising. The Jewish people all thought that we win. When Jesus was moving towards Jerusalem and they realized he was the Christ, they put down palm branches why? Because their eschatology said Jesus is going to rule the nations now. When he said, I'm tearing down this temple, from their perspective, the temple, the physical temple, was the high point of their connection with God. When Jesus said, I'm tearing down this temple, they said, what is the sign at the end of this age? What age were they talking about? They weren't talking about the end of the world. They were talking about the end of losing. The Romans were ruling the Jews the Jews were taught that they, that believers, were supposed to be in charge. Now Jesus said, and they're also going to tear down the, the, the temple. And they, said, and they said, when are we winning? What's the very first thing they say in the book of Acts chapter 1? Jesus comes, you know the story. He ends up walking through the door. He says to the boys, hey, don't leave Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. What's the first thing they ask him? What is the sign at the end of the times? Listen, let me read it to you, because I, I misquoted it. It's right here, though. Da-da-da. To these he presented himself alive after his suffering with many convincing proofs, speaking to them about the kings of, things of the kingdom. When they gathered together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father promised, which he said, you've heard from me. For John baptized with, um, with, the, uh, sorry, John baptized with water, but I'll baptize in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
When they came together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? These are the guys that heard Matthew 24. Remember, Jesus did not speak Matthew 24, there'll be wars, rumors of wars, there'll be nation will rise again. That was not a public message. It was a private message to 12 guys. These 11 guys are left. When Jesus rose from the dead and meets them in Jerusalem, the first question is, is it time to win? Because the Jewish mindset is not about tribulation or about losing or about a millennium. It's about winning now. The theme of the entire Old Testament is that God would touch his people and that they would lead the world and kings would come and they would teach kings the ways of God. That's their eschatology. So when Jesus talked about Matthew 24 to them and said, you know, I'm going to tear down this temple and I'm going to restore it in three days, da-da-da. And they're like, "When when is the end of this age? When is this over? Because this is not the way we think. He rises from the dead and they're like, is it now? How about now? How about we start winning now? So I'm saying that the the last 150-year eschatology that we're supposed to, like winning is somewhere in the by and by where you won't be alive anyway, it doesn't matter. Like, don't think about winning. Just think about getting to the tribulation. That thinking is not biblical. So yes... I believe in dominion theology. Every believer should believe you were born to win. It's in the way you were created. It's in the way that your your body was created. It's in the scriptures. It's in you to win. This is who you are. So developing some kind of theology or eschatology that says you're supposed to lose, and nobody in history has done that till the last hundred years. So yes... It's true. I'm no longer a closet, closet conqueror. I believe I was born to win. So I'm going to give you these eight things I've given them many times. They're all over the internet in a negative way. But it's, it's the way light gets into darkness. You know, sometimes people, they grab your stuff to make fun of you, and the people that read it who want to make fun of you go, that's the truth. So I kind of like when people take our stuff and they're like, yeah, let me write something bad about that. And they show it to the people and like, I believe what they said. I'm just going to do this quickly. It'll take me probably three minutes. I'll not embrace an end-time worldview that re-empowers a disempowered devil. Now, I don't know how this works, but when Jesus died on the cross, Colossians says, and several other scriptures say, say, said, that Jesus defeated the devil. I don't know how the devil gets his power back, but the devil I know doesn't. Because Jesus told me that I was to tread on him. Number two, I will not accept an eschatology that takes away my children's future. Even in Jeremiah 29, when they were in 70 years of captivity, God said, I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you a future and a hope. I will not embrace an eschatology that takes away my children's future. 
Number three, I won't tolerate theology that sabotages the clear command of Jesus to make disciples of nations or the prayer of Jesus that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. Number four, I will not allow any interpretation of Scripture that destroy hope for the nations and undermines our command to restore ruined cities. How many of you know that we bring hope to the nations? Well, it's going to get really bad. You need to practice for the tribulation. Yeah, I think we are. Number five, I'll not embrace an eschatology that changes the nature of a good God. Number six, I refuse to embrace any mindset that celebrates bad news as a sign of the times and a necessary requirement for the return of Jesus. Bad news isn't a sign of the times. It's a sign of the weakness of the church. And we're supposed to fix that. We're not going to fix it by believing we're supposed to get worse. Number seven, I'm opposed to any doctrinal position that pushes the promises of God into a time zone that can't be obtained in my generation and therefore takes away any responsibility I have to believe God for them in my lifetime. And number eight, I believe that the last days are... I do not believe that the last days are are a time of judgment, nor do I believe that God gave the church the right to call for wrath in sinful cities. There's a day of judgment which God will be the judge, not us. Would you stand, please? And if you want a copy of those, you can get them on Chris Valentin False Prophet website. I heard they're on there. Put your hand on your heart. Say this. I'm a child of the king. And as such, I was given a divine purpose that I was to lead. That I was to bless the world with creative ideas that bring hope, that bring joy, and that bring healing and health to people to cities, cities, and to nations. nations. I was born born to make a difference difference in the lives of people. people. I was called to heal the sick. I was called to to raise the dead. I was called to to prophesy destiny destiny into the helpless and the homeless and to help those those who can't help themselves. themselves. I was called to actually disciple leaders of nations in places of influence. To guide them. To teach them the ways of God. That they might be successful. Joy-filled. And leave a legacy for their children. These are the callings on my life. That I would lead people into the kingdom. And teach them the ways of the king. I am light, and light dispels darkness. I am powerful because Jesus lives in me, and he moves through me to touch the broken, to love the unlovely, to forgive the unforgivable, and to teach the ignorant the ways of God. And I intend to do it. In Jesus' name.